Welcome to Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, where we aim to travel around Botswana and learn about this wonderful safari destination as we chat with experts, safari professionals and safari legends, as we share stories, recommendations and help you plan your Botswana holiday. Joining me today for episode 13 of Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, is a man that is very popular around Mount at the moment. Everyone wants to be his mate because he is making beer. This episode's been a bit of a long time coming because in Botswana we've had a few alcohol bans and it's been not possible to buy booze, so talking about it has seemed a little bit <laughs> unfair. But um, joining me today is the director of the new Okavango Craft Brewery, and it's really exciting to have such an amazing project in Maun and um, available across the country in Botswana. He is also the director of Ecoexist Trust, which is based out of Aretza, up in the Panhandle, near Kunotsuka and Godigwa. The villages Kani and Kay were talking about in episode 10. That trust has been running there in the Panhandle since 2013, and so it gives me joy to welcome today uh, Graham McCullough. Welcome, Graham. Grace, thank you very much. Sorry, Dr. Graham McCullough. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> no problem. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so, Graham, I think that the brewery and what you're doing is such a fantastic story, but let's go back a bit and talk about how you first came to Botswana and, and what it is that led you to becoming a, a, a Botswana resident and making this place home. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, it's going back a little bit now because I've been in Botswana for 26 years. Um, it all started, well, I've always wanted to come to Africa. Did a d- degree in zoology and as soon as I finished that degree, I got a phone call from a mate who was working here for the summer and um, he was building a camp in the middle of the Makati and It turns out to be Jack's camp. And he said, well, why don't you come out here for a season and, and help me build this camp? And... Um, and I did. Um, and it's turned into a year and a year turned into two and two turned into six. And, you know, I worked at Jack's camp for four years as a guide and, and managing the camp on and off. And then got back into academia. I did my PhD on the Makarikari Pans. Finished my PhD, started working on conservation projects around Botswana. And then... Fast forward to 2013 and, and my wife and I, Anna, had just finished her PhD on human elephant conflict in the Panhandle. And so where did you and Anna meet? Um, when I was writing up my PhD, <clears throat> I went back to Dublin, to Trinity College Dublin, to write my thesis and uh, I met her there. Okay. It was quite a, quite a scandal. She was an undergrad and I was a postgrad. <laughs> <laughs> and so were you the reason she came out to Botswana and looked at doing her research in Botswana or had she already been? Well, she'd been to Africa before. She'd, um, she'd always wanted to come out to Africa to study elephants, actually. And, um, and I just happened to know a place where there was lots of elephants. And, and so I said to her, yeah, why don't you come out to Botswana? And um, obviously the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So in 2013, you both were now... Um... 2013, we decided Anna did such a great job in her PhD. She, her focus was looking at the drivers of human elephant conflict in one of the human elephant conflict hotspots in Botswana, which is the panhandle, the Okavango panhandle. And really, we decided that there was a great opportunity to focus on addressing those drivers and, and really trying to get some funding with both of our experiences working in the conservation industry and um, sector and, and having had success in raising money through donations for conservation. We decided to club together and, and really um, focus on addressing it and helping the farmers deal with the conflict. Um, so, yeah, that was the beginnings of um, EcoExist, the EcoExist project. And we, we then met a, um, a co-director of... Ecoexist Amanda Stranza, who's an anthropologist, um, and she was based in Texas A&M University. Uh, she'd out, been out here for a year, um, and we we decided to club together, and we we got a, we got some amazing funding from the Howard G. Buffett Foundation, and it gave us an amazing opportunity to really focus on addressing some of the key issues underlying 
human elephant conflict in the area. And and that spanned five years um, until that ground finished. Mm -hmm. And we've just continued since. Um, And it seems like such topical conversation now but when you started talking about human wildlife conflict back in 2013 how high of a profile did that conversation have globally or was it at that time were you trying to sort of convert people i mean now it's the subject it's things we talk about it's on social media people are aware of it was it such a thing back then yeah you're right it's difficult difficult to raise your flag and say hey you know human human wildlife conflict is really important over here and, you know, a couple of us, the Cheetah Conservation Group and, you know, Wild Crew and a couple of other um, organizations are really working hard at addressing human wildlife conflict. And it, it was, you know, for such a long time, it's been about poaching, anti-poaching efforts and the poacher, the you know, trying to track down the poacher. And a lot of resources have been put into that for good reason, for good reason. I'm not, I'm not dissing it, but... Um, but yeah, in more recent times, I think human wildlife conflict has really come to the fore in terms of a critical need um, for conservation efforts. And and the reason being is because it addresses, addresses some of the underlying drivers of habitat and wildlife loss. If we don't find solutions for people to live with wildlife, we're literally looking at keeping wildlife in protected areas only. Um, and that really doesn't work for large populations of free-roaming elephants, for example, who need vast spaces of, of, of habitat, most of which are outside the protected areas. Yeah, it's this whole concept of if you protect your mega herbivores, then you protect everything. And yeah. your your top of the pyramid species, you protect everything, but they're the ones who need space. Definitely. Whether they're predators or mega herbivores, they need a huge amount of space. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, and obviously that's... Um, that's elephants in Botswana. Elephants tends to be the the big one that everyone talks about. What's so interesting about it is that when I interviewed Kay and Kay and Carney, Kay was talking about being a she's humble growing up in Kwanetsuka, and she was talking about her experiences of living with wildlife without having any sense of how that was a unique experience growing up. And only when she got into tourism did she realise how what she sees, what was her backyard, was being seen by foreigners as something to travel halfway around the world to see. Definitely. And so um, did you feel, find that as well when you started working in those communities, that they were seeing as a challenge you could see as a sort of as from an outside perspective as potential? Yeah, you're so right. So right. It's definitely, because, you know, people who live in the Okavango Panhandle and elsewhere around northern Botswana, they have been coexisting with elephants for many years. Um, you know, we always talk about striving for coexistence. People do coexist with, with wildlife out there. It's just um, there are incidences of negative confrontations, conflict, that are happening more and more as more habitat is converted to agricultural land and more the, the elephant population has increased you know, over the last few decades, obviously it's stabilized now, recently. But, you know, if, if this was in anywhere else in the world, in, in Europe or, or in America, wow, there would be, there'd be huge problems because what the people in the panhandle tolerate, in ter- you know, when they do coexist with elephants is massive. Mm. You know, and they lose crops every year. And their resilience, to, their resilience to, to wildlife and the, the, the realities of their situation. For the sure. rest of the world wouldn't. Exactly. Like that, and, you know? and there's this big disconnect between, you know, understanding what it's like to live with elephants and somebody from outside, myself included, before I came here, who loves elephants. And, you know, we all, let's face it, we all love elephants and we all want elephants to survive for many, many, many generations to come. But there's a massive disconnect between understanding about elephants and loving elephants and understanding their behavior and knowing what it's like to live with elephants, mm. which is a very, very different thing. You know, when we first moved to the Panhandle, the first taste that I got of, you know, what it's like to live with elephants was when we, you know, we set up our camp and, you know, we managed to get ourselves a, a beautiful spot um, next to Aretza village on the front plane and, you know, idyllic, yeah, idyllic spots, you know, and then we put our tents up everywhere and, 
And all of a sudden, the ele elephants come in and knock over the trees and pull up your guy ropes and... Whoa, 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 hold on Collapse a water pipes. Yeah, this wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> and then you start realizing, well, you've got to coexist with the, these animals. Um, how do we go about doing that? And we're lucky because we have the resources that we can, you know, deploy technology that helps mm. us, you know, live with elephants, keep the elephants away from tents, for example, with flashing lights and electric fences and chilling fences and that kind of stuff. But for the average farmer... They don't have those resources. Mm. And so... And for we, you, it's an inconvenience. Totally. For them, this could be their food supply for the year. For sure, for sure. And we're just worried about a tree that, in our camp that we like looking at that's knocked over. These farmers are losing their food for the, for the year. You know, when a, a herd of elephants comes in and, and raids their crop. So it's a massive, massive disconnect. So we, we haven't really... We haven't really got there in terms of really knowing what it's like, um, but really trying to, I mean, that's what, I'm, what, what we try and do through our project as much as we can is really provide a voice for the people there. So give, give them, a, obviously empower them with as much resources and technology as, they, as we can to empower them to, to be able to, to protect their crops, to protect their their lot, if you like, and protect themselves because mm -hmm. it is dangerous living with them and people lose their lives every year. Um, so, so obviously that's the first and most important thing, but also to give them a voice, say, hey guys, you know, we are here, we do live with elephants, they're causing huge stress and huge anxiety every year and loss of life actually. Can you help us? You know? And this is what it's like to live with elephants. And if you really want to protect elephants, if you really want to conserve them, help us live with them. And because then we will help them pass through these areas and these corridors that they use, we will, we will accept that they're critical for these elephants to move through. And we'll farm over here and we'll protect our farms over here. You know, so, so there is a, a, a large amount of give and take that we need um, to understand when we're addressing human-elephant conflict. Um, yeah, exactly. And as you said, they're an iconic species that people come from around the world to see. But it, yeah. it's also, to me, such a fascinating story to hear. And that's one of the reasons why I think the idea of podcasting appeals to me is because it shares the, the, the voices of the people who are living in the country with the people who want to visit the country. And it's a similar thing what you're doing. You're saying you might want to see these elephants, but hear the voice of the person who's living alongside these elephants too. Yeah. Yeah. so that you can have a more holistic view of, of yeah. what it's about. Exactly. Understand the issues, the underlying issues. Um, and it, I, you know, <laughs> we often think about what it would be like. For example, let me tell you a, a really good response from one of the farmers. Um, when we asked them, you know, what is it like to live with elephants? And um, they will say, well, where, where do you come from? And, you know, you explain where you come from and, 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 he said, well, imagine what it would be like if you translocated one of these elephants into your back garden. What would happen to that garden and your property? Then imagine what it would be like with 15,000 of those elephants roaming through the area that you live in on a daily basis. And, and suddenly you think about, you know, wow, okay. You're that, sending your kids down to school down the road. Yeah, Exactly. Going to get your, catch a lift to get your groceries. Walking five Walking kilometers to, to your field, tend your crops. Trying yes. to get some water, trying to get some firewood. Yeah. And these are daily activities, daily activities. And you're very likely to come across elephants um, on those daily activities. And f yeah, sending your kids off to school, for example. And that's one of the things we've been working on for years and, and and thankfully, um, you know, Natural Selection have come and sponsored some some of some buses, some school buses, um, because we came up with this idea that well, one of the issues is transport, and you know, as a parent, which we are, and we know what it'd be like to send your kids off to walk three kilometers to school across elephant pathways first thing in the morning. Terrifying. It's terrifying. So let's. That's, I mean, that's one of the first things that we need to address. Mm -hmm. So 
so we came up with this idea of the school buses and and yeah natural selection were very kind to to sponsor two of them and we've got those running at the moment for the last year bringing kids back and forth to school and um, from home which is uh, which is great and we we'd like to expand the number of buses in the future um so yeah, because like I also had this conversation with Connie, how improving um, improving the livelihoods of the people in that area rests so much on education. And if there's an elephant standing between you and your education, that's quite a, you know, that's yeah. a big thing. That's a gauntlet to run, you know, yeah. past those ellies. And exactly, yeah. I'm sure that there's some days that the kids just turn around and say, not today, no school for us today. So yeah. if you can bypass that, that's amazing. And And, you know, Another impact to that on that on that front is you know the when you're protecting your crops it takes it takes a lot of effort you literally have to live in your field for four months of the year four to five months of the year for the for the growing season for the growing season and you protect your crops and and your family is there and during your harvest everybody's there and so kids are not at school at that time they're helping you know tend the field and being with their mums and so that's a big time, big chunk of time out of your education. Mm-hmm. Um, so so all of these little factors have a big impact. And are you are you working in all of five villages <clears throat> or are you focused mostly on Oretsa where you're based? Um, no, we, we started working in, in thirteen villages actually from, okay. from the top from Mahembo all the way from near Mahembo the Namibian border all the way down to Saronga and then northeast to Kudikwa village. And we have community officers that we employ in each village. And there are sort of liaison, their eyes and ears. They collect all of conflict raiding incidences. They disseminate information, like do training for us, organize meetings with the community and just feed information back and forth. And that's worked really well in, just in terms of being able to collate data, being able to disseminate data and also to assist where we can. Um, obviously, it's a massive area to cover. So we have identified some key villages that we have done more and demonstrated more activities and interventions in those villages. But obviously, we want that to scale up, you know, to scale up those interventions so it impacts more more people and helps more farmers at the end of the day. And have you seen a change in the population of those villages since 2013 and since you've been out there? Not really, no. There's, there's a big... Um, there's big you know, loss of the young people towards urban centres like Man. I'm obviously looking for opportunities in the tourism industry, etc. Population has pretty much been stable for the last ten years since since we've been there. Um, we haven't seen much much of an expansion of the villages really, um, except for maybe one or two, like the big villages like Saranga. There's been a lot more development there, but in the other villages, not much really. Um, I haven't been up that way since 2017, so um, mm-hmm. haven't haven't seen what sort of happened in the last few years. Yeah. And then now, obviously, the bridge has been built. Do you think that that's going to change? Definitely, yeah. Life overseas, as they call it. Definitely, yes, exactly. This this um, going overseas, it's a metaphor for um, actually, it's a it's a totally different experience when you do cross into the eastern panhandle, and and that will be lost for for sure when the bridge is finished and you can drive across. Um, I think I briefly discussed it in um, in Connie's episode, but at the moment, the only way to get across to these villages you're talking about is through a ferry, and we're not talking about a ferry that can take a truck. We're talking about a ferry that can take what two cars at a time, yeah. and is prone to breakdowns. Yeah, no, we've 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 sat there at the ferry waiting for the ferry for. Hours I'm and sure hours many and hours of your life hours, have been spent yeah, on the yeah. banks of the Rango. <laughs> and there. sometimes I had to turn around and go like three hours back to camp just because the ferry's not working. So mm-hmm. that's part of life there, you know. And, and and now there's going to be a bridge, so those weights will. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's pros and cons. It will bring opportunity, and there's such a strong culture and and tradition, you know, string of traditions up there, you know, with the different tribes. And, and they each have some really strong set of traditions and, and a strong sense of culture, you know. There is opportunity to really showcase that, that strong culture and traditions. Um, and it was one of the things I spoke to both um, Bonti and Koki about was the idea of cultural um, knowledge and how that gets shared with tourists. So actually the first interaction I had with EcoExist was working on cultural tourism because... 
so many people fly into Malm. Um, we're talking in a pre-pandemic world, but fly into Malm, fly into the Delta, hop between camps, have beautiful experiences, wonderful wildlife experiences, meet the warm, hospitable people of Botswana, but don't necessarily see those cultural nuances you've talked about, exactly. those variations in tribe or whatever it might be, and leave and go, oh, Botswana is, mm. a, is a great place, without appreciating that actually within, just even within Ngami land, there's so yeah. much tribal diversity. And that's not necessarily highlighted um, at the moment in, in terms of tourism. Yeah, very, and, um, very much so. Yeah. I mean, for us, one of the key drivers of, of the conflict um, is the fact that Few people benefit from the elephants that they live with, um, in inverted commas. You know, they, they see tourism happening and, you know, their sons and daughters are employed in the tourism industry in the Yokovango Delta. But, but here in the villages, the wildlife is considered different wildlife that they have to put up with, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough benefits coming back from that wildlife. So we wanted to turn that around. How is it that we can generate more benefits coming back to more households living in the villages and surrounding settlements. And and one of those ways is obviously to diversify the tourism um, economy and itinerary in the area. So we've got this huge market base already. How can we draw more tourists into these villages um, to experience something different, to experience what it's like to live with elephants? So we developed some of the tours like Life with Elephants Tour um, in the Ritza village, which comprises of 10 people who are selected by the village um, and they run this three-hour tour with clients who fly in from the Delta by helicopter and spend three hours and understand what it's like to live with elephants through stories, through dance, through going to see the fields and looking at the mitigation measures. And that's had a huge impact on those households. Their revenue has suddenly increased mm-hmm. before COVID, obviously, um, tenfold. And so that's that's a huge impact on their on their household livelihood. Plus, there's a sense of um, value in yourself as a human being when you have somebody who's spending time to hear your story yeah. and to come and say, "Well, tell me about it," because yeah. I want to understand and I want to appreciate. Yeah, exactly. And and part of their culture, which is so rich, part of that culture includes elephants. Yeah, it's part of their life and has been for decades. So, so that's a really important part of them expressing themselves through dance, through arts, through performance. And, and we wanted, really wanted to try and showcase that. And that was when we did the cultural tour, uh, mm. sorry, the cultural events mm. that, that we held every year, um, just to try and showcase the talent and, and the rich and um, diverse you know, um, talent that that existed yeah. in those villages from among the different tribes, and bring it out under an elephant theme because mm. because they all recognize it and it's incorporated into some of their dances and their their performances and their art. And that that's the shared passion. If you're going to bring somebody who's travelled halfway around the world and somebody who lives there, the shared passion is well, the shared story is elephants. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the different viewpoints. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's bridging that disconnect between loving elephants but not understanding what it's like to live with them and living with them and not necessarily loving them because there's you know, they create so much loss and stress. Mm-hmm. And and so it's bridging that gap. Um, and that's that's yeah. critical. Through the art and culture, which is yeah. great. Yeah. And that's the benefit that the bridge can bring. It can bring people yeah who would not previously have accessed that area. I know from um, talking to people, travelers over the years, that there are a lot of people who do Mount Shikawi as a drive, and then they head into Namibia. And so we've got to hope that um, as it becomes more accessible to hook right and cross the bridge into overseas, that that they do maybe add a two or three day stay in that part of the world onto their experience and, and it means Botswana can start offering more and more in terms of cultural definitely, tourism. Definitely. And one of the things we're really focusing on now is to diversify further the itinerary in that area mm-hmm. to help entrepreneurs, groups, tourism groups, or, you know, spin-off industries to get set up and help them with resources and with um, capacity building 
so that they are ready for when that happens. So it's a challenge to both the traveler to take a little bit of a walk on the wild side and go and explore these areas that aren't as e- haven't previously been easy to get to, and then also a challenge to the the people and, as yeah. you say, to to organisations like yourselves to say, what can we do to make yeah I make cultural it. tourism just elevate it a little bit and make yeah. it more high profile. Yeah, yeah. And so then from this wildlife elef- this human wildlife conflict story, we get to beer. How do we go from people living with wildlife to beer? You're Irish. It's not hard to guess that beer was, is important. <laughs> <laughs> how did your story go from beer that? Beer is always that? important. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a good question. What's the, the connection between elephants and beer? And, and no, it's nothing to do with making beer from elephant dung. But, uh, but yeah, no. So, okay. So we're, we're following on from this question of how do we generate more benefit coming back to people who live with elephants on a daily basis? as a direct result of living with elephants. Because that will change mindset, it will increase tolerance, and it will promote coexistence at the end of the day. So yeah, a very tangible, yeah. direct, I do this, these yeah. are, this is what I get money. Exactly. And so it's not, yeah. not a, my, my cousin works in tourism and I get totally. a little bit of extra yeah. food on the table because and somebody I know is... Part of the industry, yeah, yeah, and it's not. Look, let's face it. I mean, and people do really enjoy living with elephants up there. Not everybody, but but people do appreciate it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to you know. Yeah, Maslow's needs. Yes, exactly. Food, food sustenance, subsistence. Um, So, so it was. It was really. It was really coming from that that we came came up with the idea that. If we are going to impact on a community, on a landscape level, we needed to impact the farmers in some way. We needed the farmers to benefit somehow because 80% of the population there are subsistence farmers. How can we do that? So we looked at what it is, what it takes to live with elephants. And it takes a lot of effort and resources to protect your field. It takes understanding that elephants need to pass down this critical corridor to get from resource A to resource B into the Okavango Delta. So we need to let them do that. But over here, where we have fields, we need to protect it properly. We need to protect those fields and the crops inside them properly. That takes effort and resources. Inside those, those fences, we need to improve our agricultural practices and make it more sustainable. So we don't have to leave that field in five years go and clear more land further into elephant habitat. So we need to improve the soils using conservation agricultural practices. And that's what we've been helping farmers, empowering them with, with knowledge and the capacity to do that. All of this takes a lot of extra effort. Yes, it improves the harvest yield at the end of the day, but it's not enough. It's not enough to make the farmer want to do it all again next year in the middle of the heat in October. How can we turn that around? So we thought, well, after you do all of these things, your surplus that you harvest has to have an extra value in it. We would value that. How can we turn that into extra monetary value for the farmer? Previously, there was no real market that could identify the value in that surplus that was harvested by elephant-aware farmers, that we, we call them elephant-aware farmers, who do all of these practices um, in order to live with elephants. And what crops are we talking about? We're talking about staple crops like millet, sorghum. Um, you know, in good rainfall years, they also grow maize, sweet reed, um, watermelons, and then legumes like ground nuts and bambara nuts and, you know, cow peas, those, those legumes. Um, which are really important because, you know, using the legumes, crop rotating, that's a, a way of really improving the soil. But we just need to understand how that's done and why we need to rotate. And, and, and all of that is part of the process. But, but eventually you get increased yields. And, and we've demonstrated that. And so now we have a surplus. How can we give the farmer a higher price for that surplus? Because they've done A, B, and C, 
Exactly, reward them for. Exactly, reward them. How do you generate the reward? And that will incentivize them to practice it year after year. Um, so we had to we had to think about how we could turn that produce into a value-added product that we could sell in the marketplace that would return enough that we could give the farmer back a higher price. So we looked at various different products. And I tried a few of them over the years. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we tried pop sorghum and we tried making all sorts of different um, food products, drink products. And then, you know, our partner in the brewery, um, Heine Dutoy uh, and our Loki Osborne, who's been our partner for 10 years, he sits on the board of the trust, the Ecoexist Trust. And, and so Loki and Hai um, looked at, we sent them a bag of millet and we said, look, guys, turn this into something. And Hai also happens, he's a food tech scientist, and brilliant, brilliant at it. He's also a, a brewer on the side. So he, uh, he's part of a cooperative brewery in Woodstock in, in Cape Town. And he decided, that, well, why don't we try making craft beer? Um, so we, we did, we started making it and he started, gen, you know, developing a recipe and we thought, wow, there's something in this. And, and of course it didn't take me much to, yeah. it didn't take much to persuade me. He's like, um, I'm an Irishman, uh, his, his beer options are currently limited to pretty commercial options. <laughs> let's, let's diversify. Exactly. So, uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't long before we thought, well, Whoa, hold on a second. This could be this could be our flagship product. So we developed a recipe by malting the millet. So we went from from right from the beginning of the brewing process, malting the millet and, and honey developed an adjunct beer to begin with, mixing it with European malt barley, um, and then made hundred percent millet beer and we were like, Wow, this tastes good. This this has got legs. So um, we really got excited then and then we decided um, this was three years ago now. Um, there was an opportunity to move into a property here in Man that it presented itself and it, it just um, ticked all the boxes in terms of being an ideal brew pub location. We've had a history of being a spot to gather in Man. Yeah. Um, and Anyone who knows Man, it's the old sports bar facilities. <laughs> There's a fair number of us whose names are somewhere. <laughs> floating around. And yeah, the reputation alone was enough to persuade us to, to, to jump in there. But you know, it has a, an amazing um, infrastructure there and it has uh, great water um, from a borehole, mineral water from, um, that is, uh, is perfect for making good beer. And so we just decided, let's go for it. And, and we approached the landlords there and, and we started renting the place and that was it. That was like, okay, we're, we're doing this. Um, and it took us two years to get a, a microbrewery license, a manufacturing license. And, you know, the, all of this was in the back of our minds. We're like, well, well there's, no, there's no alternative place in man that we can bring this produce to turn it into a value-added product. So we're going to have to make it ourselves. So it was a, a, bit, a big leap of faith. Um, and two years later, we got our licenses and then we bought the equipment, which was, wasn't, quite, wasn't that cheap, um, but we imported it from Europe. It's an integrated microbrewing system with 4,000 liter capacity fermentation in tanks um, and uh, installed it last year, in January last year, um, t- then- 2020. <laughs> and, uh, and impeccably... Well, tough timing. <laughs> timed. Um, so we've been doing a lot of our own um, recipe development and drinking and testing beer <laughs> in it. And this is why, <laughs> as very... I say, you're such a popular man around town because everyone wants a chance to be involved in being a, a, a tester. Yeah, no, it's been it's been really tough because everybody's like, oh, when are you opening? When are you opening? Uh, this is so, so great. And obviously with the downturn and, because of COVID in the tourism industry, it's been so hard because we've seen that market just shrink massively. Um, and, you know, we, it, it is a craft beer is, is a sort of a luxury product, if you like. It, it, we can't compare it to prices 
of you know the other beers on the market which are mass made you know mass produced so it's it's um it's been really tough we've had little windows of opportunities where we've opened and had you know um some of our friends and and general you know the general population of man come in and taste the beer and the response has been overwhelming. It's so like a it's, taster of what is to come, but you haven't been able to really yeah, get it's, going. Yeah, we haven't been able to get going. It's really frustrating. It's one step forward, two steps back. But, you know, everybody's in the same boat at the moment here. Um, but we're just determined to hang in there, determined to make it work in the end, and really focusing on that, keeping the story, keeping the story there, and making the story work. And, and that is our focus. And if... Um, you know, the the one thing that really gave us a big boost was that at the end of last year's harvest, it was the first year that we went back after working eight years with these farmers. First year we went back to the farmers and we were able to pay them. And we paid them twice, over twice the price that they would normally get in the marketplace here in Mayo. And just to see the impact that that had and, you know, during COVID and it's a pretty much a cashless economy anyway up there. Mm-hmm. And just to see the impact that that had on the farmers and, you know, light bulbs going off and straight away, some of those farmers were like, here, take this. Can you buy me extra fencing equipment over here? And so, so straight away. And reinvesting it back in there. Yeah. In straight farms. away we were closing that circle, you know, and, and that for us was like, okay, we're going to do this. We, we don't we care push how through. push through. We have to do this. And obviously it's it's costing us a hell of a lot more. Um, and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a long time before this this business makes is viable down the line. But you know, we have we have an amazing team. It's been tough, you know, we've had so many conversations through COVID going, Oh, is this worth it? You know, it's really soul searching, but but it is we've we've kind of pushed pulled through this far and we're determined now we've come come this far we're going to make it work, mm-hmm. and also you know amazing people um, that we work with on the ground and and just working with the farmers and seeing their resilience gives us a boost as well um, yeah. in terms of our resilience and the need for resilience you know to make this work. And you talked about the end of last year's harvest. What's the harvest of twenty twenty one looking like? It, I mean, it's been a really wet year, which I'm assuming is good, but I'm sure it has some drawbacks in that. Yeah, farmers no, also then. I mean, it's not always easy growing when there's so much rain. Yeah, exactly. We've had a really above average rainfall year. Um, many of the fields have been flooded, which has reduced um, the crop yield this year. For sure, but we'll we'll still get uh, the farmers will still get a, an average harvest yield, not as good as last year. Um, last year it was a bumper harvest, but uh, but yeah, the farmers will still will get some, and we we think there will still be some surplus harvest among the farmers that we we've been assisting um, with the various different mitigation measures and practices, agricultural practices. And are you able to get sufficient yield from the farms that that's the only source or are you buying the lot from elsewhere as well to, to brew? No, we want we want to really keep the story true. We want it just to come from farmers who understand. I mean we're not forcing farmers to do no. all of these things. But it's like an agreement. But as you say it's that elephant what did you call it? Your elephant Elephant aware. aware elephant aware. So if you're an elephant aware farmer, as we coin it, um, and you meet these three criteria, you appreciate that these elephant corridors are critical for elephants to exist in the area. And if you do cultivate on those corridors, you're going to get hammered. You're going to get your crops wiped out. But if you rather cultivate over here and you protect your fields, and we've, we've been promoting cluster fences whereby, you know, 80, 100 farmers are inside one main fence that they then cooperate in maintaining. Um, and then you practice, number three, you practice more sustainable conservation agricultural practices to increase your yields, to make you more food secure, but also to increase your resilience against the impact of elephants when they cooperate. Um, if you meet those three measures, you know, the agreement is that we understand and we agree that we will pay you twice the price for that because we understand that that, that surplus produce has a higher value and we're willing to pay for that higher value. 
Um, and then, as you said, the fact that the beer is a luxury item means that you can absorb that cost. Exactly. And, you know, before COVID, we were like, wow, you know, this the is... The model works. Yeah, the model, <laughs> model works in theory, you know. And, and you know, every single tourist um, that comes, I mean, me included, the first thing I asked when I walked into the bar is like, well, what's local, you know? And, and not just local as in Botswana brewed, manufactured in a factory, but Okavango water... Yes. Pulled through this beautiful Okavango sands we've got here and locally grown millet. Yeah. And so really as and grow, brewed on site in Mal. Yeah. And so it, it is truly local, um, you know, made from local produce, local water, mineral water. And, and that, that for us is, you know, has been, it's been amazing actually to see the response because the people are sold on the local part, but then there's the story behind it, and really the story behind it is is a big part of our our sort of marketing strategy, if you like, because because really for the tourism industry that is a way, like we were saying earlier, how can I support the people who live with elephants to live with elephants with less conflict, and this is a way that you can do. By drinking a beer, yeah. you know, and that's, that's... <laughs> it's really beneficial. <laughs> you get to have a really good cold beer while you're sitting on your safari, knowing that you can feel good about it because you feel extra good about extra it. Extra good yeah. about it. Not yeah. to mind, you know. Yeah. Obviously, the, the beer is fantastic, and, and you know, not biased or anything. But you know, we have made some really good beers now. We've got five different types, um, from all the way from a lager up to a, a stout, you know, and different types and. And we've got a great brewer, um, our head brewer, um, Murray. He's based here in Man now, and he's developing some really great recipes um, for specialty brews. And we want to incorporate other local products into the brews as well, like some of the forest fruits that we get, you know, marula and jackalberry. And, um, and yeah, just mix it up. And, and that's the beauty about craft beer. It's craft. You can just do whatever. I mean, there's... And you can do something endless. for a season. It can yeah. be seasonal. It can be... Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. So you can really... Individualized. Oh, fantastic. <clears throat> so at the moment, you're producing five different types of beer. Obviously, you're not producing at max volume. Yeah, so we've got a capacity of turning over 4,000 liters a month. Um, obviously, we're not at that capacity at the moment. We, we can't sell that much at the moment. Um, there's just not the market for it right now. Um, but, you know, we do have that capacity. And, and one of the, the great things about the last six months is that we decided to go for a canning machine um, to help us get the volume out instead of distributing through, through bottles, for example, or returnable growlers, they call them. Um, and so the, the cans have worked really well. We only recently were, were able to sell cans and they've We've just got a great feedback already from them. And so we have five different types of beer that we're canning um, from lager, which we call Delta Lager, right up to stout, um, which is, you know, your hardcore stout drinker can enjoy. Um, so we, we want to keep those five beers online the whole time. But obviously we're going cool. the core, the core range. But obviously, we want to mix it up, and, and Murray, our brewer, is is um, doing some amazing um, experiments with with local fruits like jackalberry and marula, and mixing it up and making speciality brews. And and then that's the beauty about it; you can just keep it fresh. And mm -hmm. so every time you come into the pub, there's Different something new. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's um yeah, it's really exciting. And, and, and those beers are obviously the plan is for them to be on tap at the brewery. But then you also have them available as cakes? Yeah, so we also have um, these party pumps, we call them, um, which can go with a small 20-litre keg that you can take with on the boat up the river for the weekend and you have 20 litres of beer to share with your friend. Um, so somebody who's coming in and self-driving themselves around Botswana, if they want to have beer on tap, they can rent, yeah. rent a party pump from you with their 20 litres. Yeah. Or more. Or 30 litres. <laughs> <laughs> or more, whatever they need. Or keep 50 litres if you really get... Keep it chilled and enjoy, yeah. enjoy the beer as you go. I mean, yeah. that's, that is the ultimate, like to me, that is camping luck. So that's... No, it's great. It's a great way of, of going. And, you know, from personal experience, it works so well. And we've had some 
some great weekends away with friends and, and just enjoyed beer right through the weekend on tap. Um, yeah, and so that's that's one of the the ideas that we we would like to really push going forward. You know, and maybe for for you know for self drives who are just there for a couple of weeks, maybe it's an you know it's an option for them. You know, you just stick your keg in a bucket of ice and and head off. There's other returnable one liter growlers that we sell as well, um, and that you can return them and refill them, or not return them and have a really good-looking bottle for your water that you take back home yeah, yeah, as exactly. a souvenir from your safari. Which seems to be happening a lot. <laughs> You're not getting your brothers back. <laughs> no, 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 which I understand. I do the same. I to say. Um, obviously, the, the brew pub is part of our model, and we wanted to, we wanted to emulate the, the, the trendy brew pub that has been popping up all over the place, all over the world. You know, it's really becoming um, the go-to sort of place for people when they go out on a Friday or Saturday night. So Botswana doesn't have a brew pub. Um, so we really wanted to, yeah, develop one. And Marin is a perfect spot for it. You know, we really think Marin is a great place for a brew pub and, and something different that people can come and, you know, with, a, with that brew pub vibe, drinking whatever type of craft beer you like, and mm. doing a brewery tour as well, you know, for tourists who are waiting in Mound, waiting for the next flight out. Also so giving tourists a reason to spend a night in Mound, which is yeah. good for our local economy and helps, you know, really helps Mound not just be an in and out spot. There's this mentality of there's nothing interesting to do in Mound, so why spend a night? But something like that is a real, it's a real reason to... Yeah, to linger. You, totally. You might have to linger and spend a night after a night at the brew pub. It's going <laughs> to be a, We wanted to build the brand really around the brew pub. Um, and, and so I have this kind of focal point in Mann. Um And from there, then distribute obviously to the tourism industry and, and to the general populace around Man and elsewhere in Botswana. Really frustrating. We have the brew pub, it's ready to go. And it's beautiful. You've done such a great job. You've taken what was a great venue and you've given it a new life. And and I tell you, you've made that building look really, really beautiful. And just seeing the vats and the copper pipework and everything is exciting and interesting. Yeah, we wanted to generate that that microbrewery vibe. So when you walk into the pub, you can see the brewery in the background through those big windows, you know, bringing the pipework through the design of the brew pub itself and, you know, to generate that sort of industrial vibe. And yeah, and I, and I think it's worked really well. We had, a, we had an amazing designer uh, help us, Mike Danes from, from Zim, who is part owner of the River Bar up in Vic Falls. Which it's is a beautiful pub, yeah. Yeah, so we're you know we're well connected there, and we we call it we're sort of sister breweries, if you like, as well as Big Sip and Gabs, you know, the other mm-hmm. microbrewery in Botswana. We all get on really well, and that's the thing about the microbrewery industry. It's it's a very much a you know well, it's a shared passion, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and everybody helps each other, and we share share trips for for materials and 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 for more stock, and and you know we go halves on shipments and that kind of st- stuff. So, so yeah, it is a great vibe and you, you do learn a lot from each other. And then you pass on that knowledge then, you know, so it's that, that whole good vibe. Does thing. Big Sup have a venue? They, they're only available through restaurants. They don't have their own. Do they, they have do a they? tap room. They oh, they a, do have a tap yeah, room. they have, they recently um, developed a tap room. So they have a tap room where okay. you can go and taste their beers there. Yeah. Well then happy to promote them as well. And I love, um, the guys in Big Falls as well. So there you go. If yeah. you are, you could go on a uh, craft beer tour of Botswana and head into Big Falls and just Definitely. taste beer for Definitely. a great yeah. time. Yeah, you know, and one of the things we're talking about is having, you know, a tap of Big Sip for Big Sip and having a tap for River Bar in our mm. brew pub and vice versa, you know, having a Nokavango Craft Brewery tap in Big Falls and then Gabs. And so we're, you know, we're chatting about that as well and when things get going again, um, which is which is great, you know. It creates a, a really great community vibe. The goal is that people can come and sit, they can drink great beer, they can have nice 
typical pub grub. And underneath, beautiful fig trees that are there where you are. And spend a night in Mound and at the end of the day, feel good about it because it's all going back to people who don't get the luxury of doing that because they're busy trying to protect their crops from yeah. elephants. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the, the brewery tours are a big thing for us because it's an opportunity to then share the story and share share what it's all about, where it's come from. Um, and, you know, through walking through the brewery and, and looking at the millet and how we malt the millet and, and really giving people another experience and coming away thinking, wow, okay, you know, and then finally going down to the brew pub and actually enjoying drinking the beer. Um, and especially at the end of a safari, when you've, when you've been taking photographs of those elephants in the Delta and, you know, and then you come and you understand, you know, this whole story about, well, there are people who live with these same elephants and, and here's a way that you can actually help support those people, live with them in the future without, you know, being in conflict the whole time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we, we just really hope that that contributes in a, in a way. And again, you know, bridging that gap between the knowledge, loving elephants, you know, among all of us, we love elephants. And then understanding what it's like to live with elephant, elephants and, and what it takes to really conserve elephants, large free roaming populations of elephants in the future is and, and this is we we need to address human elephant conflict if that's going to happen yeah and this is an opportunity for people to go from being a keyboard warrior to actually making a real tangible impact and enjoying a good and enjoying a good <laughs> while you do it and you're making it very easy for them <laughs> and they taste great too uh, i think that's the, that's the other thing this is not just a supporting um support yeah. you know they are really good beers whilst you're at it. Yeah, thanks. We've tried to give them names, you know, linking the names to the Delta and elephants, like Delta Lager, the Matriarch, Amber Ale, um, Kingfisher IPA. What is What's the Kolsch? The, the Kolsch is Leleme Lenoka, which means the tongue of the river. When the, the first floods of the Delta arrive, the local name for for that water coming down is Lilleme Lanoka and uh, it it just so happened when we made our first brew when when that flood last year came and hit man so you're like wow that's it has to be it has to be Lilleme yeah. and I actually was busy um, I interviewed Mike uh, Murray Hudson when that was coming down we were talking about the excitement of of the blessing of the waters because we were, we were asking Mike the impossible question about when the waters were going to arrive which he got very wrong, but it's okay. We all, I think most people did. <laughs> but um, exactly that. And that's the one that I like. I like the Kolsch. What's the stout? Stout is, um, it was called Dr. GMC, but uh, I was like, no, we've got to change that. Um, we've, we've called it the old bull now. Um, so Dr. GMC is becoming an old bull. So we, we changed it to old bull. But um, yeah, we've, we're going to, like I say, we're going to come out with other beers, speciality beers that we'll have, you know, on tap every now and again, um, and really try and keep it fresh so that there's always a good range of beers that you can choose from. And you were also talking um, about keeping it local. You mentioned Murray's part of your team on the ground. Who else is your team on the ground in terms of in the micro? Yeah, so, you know, a big part of what we want to do through this is obviously build capacity and empower people from the local communities. And, you know, great, a great story. We've employed uh, one of the guys that we know from Aretza, from the cattle post that we live next to, Ollie. And he's been with us for years, just doing various different um, jobs, anything that we could give him because he's so keen to help and to get involved in EcoExist. Um, and then when we opened the brewery, he was asking, could he have a job? And so we employ them as a, you know, just a, a local help around the place. Um, and he's, he's stepped up a number of gears and he's, he's built his capacity and he's now working under Murray. And he's in the brewery and he's filling cans and he's filling growlers and he's, 
he's on it and it's so great to see and we've known him for years yeah, that's um, fantastic. and he's a young guy and he's so passionate about it now you know and so and so for us that's an example of of really what we want to do in the future more of and what a great ambassador for somebody who is then doing the tour of the brewery to meet a guy who is from yeah. that area with the same place as the millet yeah. and you know yeah. see the story sort of almost complete yeah. complete circle yeah and he you know we've come out with some merchandise now some caps and t-shirts and boy he just doesn't take them off he's like so proud <laughs> of and he, when he goes home to his village he goes and and he's chirping the whole way talking to people about the brewery and the product and the beer and, how great and so, so well, again what an ambassador for the conservation story as well exactly then, you, know? you know and when we first met him it was at one of these cultural fair events and he was a, one of the poets that stepped up and recited this poem that he wrote about elephants. And we were blown away, like, wow, this guy's passionate. And, and that passion now comes through in his work in the brew. It's great. It's so great to see. And we have all of our staff are from Man or from the villages in the Panhandle. And we want to increase that staff complement once the brew pub is opened. Um, like I said earlier, we've been blown away by the feedback from from Botswana, from local citizens who are really proud that there is a product made in man, a beer product for that matter, that they can be proud of, you know. Mm. And, and we've just had, we've had such an amazing feedback from Botswana on, on social media. Well, I think that one thing, Graham, is that everything you've done, your merchant, your logo, the, um, the work you've done on the brewery and how beautiful it is and the quality of the produce – just doesn't feel like at any point you're taking shortcuts. You certainly are not relying on it being a feel-good story in terms of people supporting your product. It just enhances the product. It's certainly not the main reason why people are doing it. It's such a great product. And so I cannot see any reason why when the, when the numbers, when the people, when our travelers who are hopefully listening to this podcast return, mm. I can't see any reason why your business is not going to just kick off and just be this amazing story that is – from as you say, from overseas, from the yeah. from the panhandle, yeah. and just you know, that's I'm sure that's why people are embracing this product. It's a great product, and it's something we can really all stand behind and be proud of. Um, Thank you. As yeah. a local, as a local success story, <laughs> I feel like yours is the story of 2020 because it's a story of resilience and perseverance, and I'm I have utmost faith that you will be rewarded for your sticking through this yeah no no thank you um you know we like i say we've had many soul searching meetings among the team but our our main investor we have to take our hat off to him you know in in his steadfast belief and and you know real it's it's just been it's been ins inspirational really to to have somebody like that who really believes in it um, from the beginning, you know, right through to, okay, we're going to see this out through COVID. And, and you know, but like you say, at the end of the day, the story is great, but, but the product has to be good. And so we've been, we've been really working on making sure, because at the end of the day, people are not going to want to buy a story in a pint of beer. They want to buy a good beer. And that's what we've really worked hard at, at making. And we hope, yeah, we hope people agree with us when they come and taste it. You have, you've got some already some really loyal followers amount, and I'm sure that um, as as things open up, your your business is going to start getting real, real legs. And it's also great to hear though that there are people who are that passionate about investing in Botswana, and that's also just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, great. So are you ready for your snapshot session? Yeah, go for it. Ready, ready for them. Born ready. So how many years is it that you've been in Botswana? Do you say twenty? 26. This is 26 years of wisdom we're tapping into here. Years. You're, you're 26 no years of experience. No, no pressure. Yeah. Um, what is your most precious or valued piece of safari equipment and why? Uh, tough one, but I would have to say it's got to be the angle because it has to keep the bears cold. And the angle fridge is the one, yeah, the one and only fridge I've ever had that has consistently kept beers cold on camping trips. So, yeah, that, that'll have to be it. So your portable fridge, your angle, fantastic. I like it. It's a new one. No one said that already, so there you go. <laughs> There's a, 13 episodes in you, you've come up with a new one. 
Which one destination would you recommend a first-time visitor visits? Um, yeah, it's got to be Makati Kati Pans. I'm, I'm a, yeah, I'm a sucker for Makati Kati. It's, it's where I first started when I came to Botswana. It's where I worked for the first four years in the safari industry. It's where I did my PhD and spent many years after that. And, you know, when you've been to the Makati Kati and you've seen that open lunar landscape and, you know, and you experience the contrasts and you've experienced the different colors that are different to anywhere you've, you've been to in Botswana or in Southern Africa, you really, I think you come away with a different experience. So that for me is, is yeah, it's got to be top of the list. Really. I keep on saying this. Every episode, Makari Kari has popped up. And it says something to me about the space because it's not on everybody's first time itinerary, but yet it keeps on. It's the thing that the people who live here talk about repeatedly. So awesome. Mm. Fantastic. One resource everyone coming to Botswana should know about, whether it's a book, a website, a podcast, app. Um, Gee, over the years, we've, we've directed people towards, you know, the guidebooks. Right, um, Lonely Planet, those guidebooks. There's a, a good one by written by Mike Main. Um, I can't remember the name of it. But a guide I can to stick Botswana. the I can stick it in the in the show notes. Yeah, um, which has really good anecdotal experiences that, and you know off the beaten track um, roads in places that you wouldn't normally go. You know, not places obviously that are too sensitive that you shouldn't go. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, those are normally the the references that we direct people towards. Okay, uh, the one your top sundowner destination: drink or piece of advice for having a great sundowner <laughs> in Botswana. <laughs> well, that's a slam dunk. I mean, that's, that's an easy one. Um, I would say I'm going to push and promote the helicopter horizons craft beer tour into the delta it's a it's just an aerial trip by helicopter from man from man into the okavango delta you land on an island in the middle of the delta and you pop open a bottle of craft beer um or an okavango gin um and the the two complement each other really well and and that for me that has to be the ultimate sort of um day trip you like or you know sort of you know that last luxury experience that you want to have just before you leave yeah fantastic if you had a weekend to explore locally and you're allowed to (laughs) (laughs) where would you go (laughs) where would you go (laughs) i think obviously the makati kari is one but uh going by boat up up into the okavango delta is very special um, and going by Makoro is even more special because you don't have the sound of the engine and you take in all of the sounds, the sights, um, the whole experience. Uh, and for me, that's a really special way of experiencing the Okavango Delta, especially if you're with a polar who has grown up, who's born in the Delta, grown up all his life, doing exactly that. And, and you feel completely you know, you don't even think about, you know, what it's like to pole or the effort involved in poling this Makoro through the, the swamps. So that's, yeah, that's, that's got to be a highlight. Fantastic. I love that suggestion. And it sounds very peaceful and um, luxurious in terms mm. of the idea of that peace and serenity. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time today, Graham. I really appreciated it. And, um, all the best for what's coming ahead. And, and again, thanks for turning what could be a tough story of human-wildlife conflict into something that's tasty and delicious and refreshing and very easy to support. Yeah, thanks very much. It was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah it's great. That was Dr. GMC, Dr. Graham McCulloch from EcoExist and Okavango Craft Brewery, sharing with us the story behind their wonderful project, 
It's April 2021 and it's such a beautiful time of year to be out and about in the bush as it starts to dry up after what's probably been our last rain. And I was lucky enough to get away over the Easter weekend to Savuti where, wow, we saw so much and it was such a wonderful breakaway. So it does mean that this episode has been sitting, waiting to be edited for a little while. But as we look to the summer, the northern summer of 2021, and we start to see people returning, I really do hope that it's not very long until you can all buy a beer and uh, support this wonderful project and take a tour. Once again, I thank you for taking the next step in this journey with me. Until next time. (laughs) 